0: text for this morning is Genesis chapter 2, the verses 4 through 14. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord himself, the Lord God, formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. After the sermon, we will respond by singing Psalm 25, stanzas 5 and 6. This morning's sermon was prepared by Reverend Peter Holtfleur, minister in the Spring Creek Canadian Reformed Church in Tintern, Ontario. As we move into Genesis 2, it is helpful to keep in mind that Genesis is the book of beginnings. The very name Genesis is taken from a Greek word which means birth, generation, pointing to the start of life, the start of new things. And in the original Hebrew, the very word of Genesis, the very first word of Genesis and of the Bible is the word beginning, in the beginning. The book of Genesis is concerned with the origins, the beginnings of things as we know them still today. And throughout its 50 chapters we find relayed a series of beginnings one after the other. What we've seen so far in Genesis 1 through 2 verse 3 is a sweeping overview of the beginning of all creation from A to Z. In a short but simple factual account Moses tells us how God created the heavens and the earth and all therein. But now in this text and indeed in the rest of chapter 2 the inspired author narrows his focus to describe a more particular beginning, the beginning of mankind. A lot of people get confused or frustrated when they go from Genesis 1 into Genesis 2, because part of chapter 2 seems like a duplication of chapter 1, and parts even appear to contradict the first chapter. It may seem at first that chapter 2 is a second account of the origins of the world, But in fact, what we have here, beloved, is a detailed account of the origins of man. It's not rehashing what was done in the six days of creation, but it is taking a microscope, so to speak, to the sixth day of creation, and particularly to the moment when man was created. It's about how man was formed, where man was placed, what man was charged with, what opportunities, resources, and materials man was given to work with, and who man was given as a helper. And so it is that God reveals here some very important things about man, about us, and our relationship to our Creator. I proclaim to you this word of God. God covenants with man in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight, and the Covenant of Delight. God covenants with man in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight. What may throw us off at first is the beginning sentence of our text. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On its own, this leads you to expect another version of, or at least more information on, the six-day creation week. And yet there's more to it. The word account is literally the word generation, or descendants, regularly used in Genesis at the beginning of the historical account of a man and his family. For example, in Genesis 5, verse 1, we read, This is the written account of Adam's line, and what follows is the genealogy of Adam, a list of his descendants. In our text, then, the generation of the heavens and the earth is what came forth from the heavens and the earth, what was generated by them and produced by them. And then you can understand how mankind is the focus of that generation. For verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. By the power of God, man is generated from the earth itself. Just like God's power, children are born to Adam, so by God's might, Adam is, you could say, born of the soil, born of the earth. It's good to reflect on that for a moment. You and I have our physical origins in the dust of the earth. Our bodies are nothing more than particles of soil fused together by God's incomprehensible wisdom. From dust we were taken, and to dust we shall return. Check in any grave after a period of time, and all you'll find is dust, and only a thin layer at that. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? We're often complaining about dust. How many of you didn't dust your house in the last two days, or wash the dust off your car? Dust is something we avoid, something we get rid of, and yet ironically, we don't often relate dust to ourselves. We often think we're quite high up on the ladder, that we're something else. We can sometimes stand for quite a long time in front of the mirror and admire our good looks, or we can be filled with pride at our accomplishments, at our standing in the community, at the strength of our bodies, or at the important work we do. We can look down our noses on others who don't have the abilities we have or who aren't quite as good looking. But brothers and sisters, let's not kid ourselves. At the end of the day, we are but living dust. We can sing it in Psalm 103, stanza five. He knows our frame, that it is weak and humble. He keeps in mind how prone we are to stumble. The Lord recalls that we are only dust. The Lord recalls it. He keeps it in mind How about you, beloved? Do you live in the acute awareness that you are but walking dust? It's only then that you can understand God's grace in raising us up from the dust. For verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Notice the care God takes in creating man. With most other creatures, and with all the rest of creation itself, God merely spoke and things came into being. But with man, the Lord takes his time, so to speak. It's almost a picture of a potter with his clay forming and fashioning the mud into just the right shape, into the exact vessel he wanted to make. Only God is not just forming the dirt and the dust, but we read he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. God took the soil, the dust, and animated it, infused it with something of himself, the breath of life. Isn't that marvelous? Scientists today still cannot figure out how to make life, how to create life. They can manipulate the cells, they can set the right conditions for the cells to reproduce, but they cannot ignite the process. They cannot infuse a dead substance with a living spirit. They cannot make a new life, a new creature, a new beginning. And the reason they can't be loved and the reason they never will is because man's life comes directly from the breath of God. God brought life into existence by his own spirit, and since no man can control God, no man will ever hold the power to create life. And because God created human life, human life is precious and valuable. I want you to understand that well. Secular psychology talks a lot about self-esteem. Many people suffer from low self-esteem, they say. The answer is to think more highly of yourself, to take pride in yourself for who you are, to consider yourself to be of importance and value. But self-esteem is an empty lie and an illusion. For the truth is, of ourselves, strictly on our own, we are nothing but a pile of dust of no value whatsoever. No pile of dust has any reason to esteem itself. But when the creator of heaven and earth takes time to form that pile of dust into a person and breathes into that pile of dust the breath of life, then man gains relevance, meaning, and value. When God makes man a living being to know his creator, when he even gives man charge over all his creation as vice-regent, when he makes man in his own image, that wondrous work of God infuses man with a preciousness that no one can take away. We must not get caught up in this cult of self-esteem, for that only drives us further away from God into ourselves. Rather, we must esteem God." For as we exalt God and glorify our Creator, then we will see how His care, His effort, His breath of life give value to us as creatures. We are not worthless. Our life is not meaningless or without value, and we do not need to remain in the pit of despair, for we are God's handiwork. Our spirit comes to us from God's own breath. God has invested in us. God is busy with us. God has a relationship with us, and that's what makes us worth something. You can see God's care for man in making for him a garden of delight. Notice again the very personal attention the Lord gives to this. Verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. God planted the garden, not the angels'. Nor was man given garden building or landscaping as his first task. But the Lord planted it himself and placed man in it. The Garden of Eden. Literally, the Garden of Delight. Now this is not your typical vegetable garden that many of us have in the back of our house. As much as we may like our veggie patch, we wouldn't want to live there. This garden was more like a big park or an arboretum. It would be something like the Butchered Gardens in Victoria, or even the Devonian Botanical Gardens, where over many of acres of land you would have many varieties of fruit trees and shade trees, shrubs and flowers, meadows and pathways. This kind of garden park was common for kings in the ancient world to place beside their palaces. You can think of King Nebuchadnezzar and, and his famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Some of the wealthier kings would even import both exotic plants and animals and have their own zoo in their garden. So the Lord God makes this kind of arboretum garden, stocked with all sorts of trees and shrubs and flowers, as well as all kinds of animals roaming freely about in harmony and peace. And there he places man to till it and keep it. This is man's first home, his model environment, the perfect place to start a life. And I'd like you to notice how it is described in verse 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. The Lord liberally supplies Adam with more than enough food so that he can undertake his task of subduing the earth. But there's more than just food here. Those trees were pleasing to the eye. Those trees didn't just serve the practical purpose of feeding Adam and later Eve, but they were also beautiful to behold, and God made them that way on purpose. Beauty, or aesthetics, is something we sometimes demote in our thinking and doing. We are practical people. As a Dutch immigrant community, we are well known for our hard work and great production, for our efficiency and skill, but we're less known for our works of beauty, for our striking designs, for making things that please the eye, and yet that too is part of God's creation. We are mindful of the proverb, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. In this fallen world, such things on their own can easily become a god, but we are equally mindful that when dedicated to God's glory, when done for his purposes, beauty is a blessing from above. We like to say about things, as long as it gets the job done, it doesn't really matter what it looks like. As long as the car gets you from point A to point B, as long as the roof over your head keeps you warm and dry, as long as it serves its purpose, the rest makes no difference. But brothers and sisters, from the beginning, it was not so. Aesthetics and beauty and pleasing to the eye is given us by God to enhance and enrich our life so as to make us all the more reflect on the beauty and majesty of our God. It is not a waste to have pleasing architecture. It is not vain to keep your yard manicured. It is not idleness to make even yourself beautiful when you do so mindful that it is a gift of God, a gift which must never be used to exalt your own name, but only God's name. The garden of delight was liberally supplied with food and beautiful to behold, and yet that's only the tip of the iceberg for God also placed it in a special location. We learn in verse 8 that he planted the garden in the east, in Eden. And then in the verses 10 through 14, we have an elaborate description of the garden's placement. Now on first read, this passage can seem rather obscure. We meet names of rivers and lands we aren't familiar with. Pishon, Havilah, Gihon, Cush, And then there's an apparently parenthetical comment about gold, resin, and onyx. It all seems like unnecessary detail, and we quickly pass over it. Even scholars who try to work out the details and pinpoint the whereabouts of Eden run stuck because some points of geography are unknown to us now. But if you see this not in the first place as a map to locate Eden in the garden but as a description of the garden's strategic setups, then the details come alive. Look at verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. We often think that Eden is the name of the garden, But actually this verse, together with verse 8, shows a distinction between the area known as Eden, and the garden that the Lord planted in that area. The river which waters the garden has its origins in Eden, and flows from there into the garden, and then it separates into four headwaters. We should then picture the garden as immediately adjacent to Eden. So if you took an aerial view of the area, you would see Eden, where the river begins, then the garden through which the river passes, and then on to the wide-open world that is watered by the one river as it breaks up into four separate rivers. You cannot rightly understand the garden where Adam was placed until you appreciate the significance of the river which passes through it. For the river has its source outside of the garden. Now we all know how important fresh water supply is. The damming of the Peace River in British Columbia has impacts on communities downstream in Alberta. Manitoba is all up in arms because North Dakota wants to divert polluted water into the Red River. And there are international agreements regulating control of the Columbia and other rivers between British Columbia and Washington State. The fight for clean, fresh water concerns even Parliament Hill and the White House. The same is true in Bible times and all throughout the Bible we see water as a symbol for maintaining life. Water keeps people alive. Take the water away and the people will soon die. But now the water which gives life to the garden where man is placed does not originate where the man dwells but is outside of it, where, by implication, God himself dwells. The setup of the garden and the flowing of the four rivers all trace their origin and their very life supply to Eden itself. And who is it that supplies and sustains life if it is not the Lord God? The Garden of Eden is called three times in Ezekiel the Garden of God because it was not just man's dwelling place, but also God's. The Lord established in Eden his earthly sanctuary. We see the same setup coming back at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. John is shown a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, the place where both God and man will once again dwell together. In Genesis, it's a garden. In Revelation, it's a city, which shows a development in subduing the earth. But the essence of the arrangement is the same. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. Do you see that? The river of the water of life originates from the very throne of God and proceeds outward to provide that living water to all the city's inhabitants. And then notice another parallel to the Garden of Eden. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." The tree of life, which stood there at the beginning, will also be there at the end. For the Garden of Eden is not just a piece of real estate in Mesopotamia. It's not just a pleasant place to live, nor is it only a paradise for man to enjoy. But it's the residence of both God and man, both creator and creature, living in harmonious covenant, the covenant of delight. Perhaps you noticed another peculiar thing about our text. It begins already in verse 4 and continues right through. The use of two names for the Creator, the Lord God. If you read back through chapter 1, where Moses describes the creation of all things, then he only uses the name God. But now, when he focuses on the creation of man, Moses adds the name Lord. Now notice how our English translation has Lord capitalized with four capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That has a special meaning. It is the accepted translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, which means, I am who I am. Yahweh is the name specifically revealed to Moses at the burning bush, as God was fulfilling his ancient covenant promises given to Abraham. While the name God is more a title for the Creator, Yahweh is the Creator's personal name, the name which the Lord always associates with his covenant. Think of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and then follows the Ten Words of the Covenant. So when the inspired Moses brings the name Yahweh as man's creation is described, he immediately draws our attention to the covenant. If you read quickly through our text, you can have the feeling that God set man up with a pretty good arrangement in the garden and then kind of went away to be in the background, perhaps returning to heaven. But brothers and sisters, God created man to live with him in communion, fellowship and covenant. God is not distant, but himself dwells in Eden and brings man into close proximity to himself. The garden isn't strictly man's abode, and it most certainly isn't man's personal playplace to do with what he wants. No, God lives with man, and God covenants with man. That's also why we see two distinct trees at the centre of the garden, with commandments attached to them. God isn't remote from the situation. But he gives man a task and charges him to be mindful of that one tree. The Lord, by his very act of creation, binds himself to man in a relationship of love and delight. We'll have to come back another time to those two trees. But let's understand right now, beloved, that the whole structure of Eden and the garden shows God's intention from the start. To dwell with man in holy covenant. God desires an intimate relationship of love, reverence, and obedience. Is that also your desire? Or do you believe in God just because that's all you know? Or because you don't want to end up in hell? Do you believe in God simply because you cannot deny his existence? Or because you can't think of a better alternative? Beloved, life is more than living. Eternal life more than living forever more than just not dying. Life is to know your God, to live in communion with him, in fellowship with him, even in friendship with him. Eden and the garden are meaningless without the Lord's covenant of delight. Brothers and sisters, don't just go through the motions of faith, but get to know your God, to love him and walk with him day by day. Fill your life with the meaning by taking up The Lord's covenant which he made with you, made now through the blood of his Son. The Lord's love for us is still there, even more than ever, for when we broke the covenant in Adam, God repaired it in his Son. When we cut ourselves off from the tree of life and incurred eternal death, the Lord had his Son nailed to the tree of death in order to restore us to everlasting life, a life in covenant with God a life that truly knows God in love and fellowship. Would you have liked to have lived in the Garden of Eden? Set your mind on a higher goal, for in Christ you can go beyond Eden. For Christ takes us from the Garden of God to the City of God, where Father, Son, and Spirit will dwell with us forever, as Revelation 22 verse 4 says. The throne of God and and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They will see his face. That is the delight of God's covenant. That is the joy of living. Seek the face of your God today. Go to him in prayer through the blood of the Lamb, and look forward to the sweetness of paradise restored, to perfection. Amen.